Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London. I'm Suzanne Blimson. Here's a report from the EU summit that has just ended in Brussels. Hi, this is Jim Brunston, EU correspondent for the Financial Times in Brussels, and with my colleagues Rochelle Toplinski and Michael Peel, also from our Brussels office. And we are sitting in the centre of the press room of the European Council, where this week we've had a very important EU summit dealing with issues such as Brexit, but also the future of the Union's relationship with China. We're going to be discussing both of those issues and looking at what this week's meeting of EU leaders actually achieved. And so uh, I guess the best place to probably start is to go straight in on Brexit. Rochelle, how do you see the result? of the summit and Theresa May's visit to discuss all these issues with EU leaders yesterday. Well, she arrived yesterday asking for a short extension to 30th of June. And what was supposed to be quite a short discussion ended up stretching into most of the evening as the EU leaders, once she'd made her presentation, went away and mulled over the various options. There was moving dates around and all sorts of things. And eventually they ended with sort of a two-tier solution so there was a two-tier in in the sense of what we've got uh, an extension so she goes back with an extension to the 12th of april that gives a bit of breathing room for her and the house of commons to have another meaningful vote see if she can get her deal through or what support might be there and then at that point if she wants more of an extension that sort of becomes the second brexit date as it Mm -hmm. were and yeah And then if they do decide that they want to accept her deal, that gives the breathing room until May Mm -hmm. to be able to pass through the legislation and come back. Alternatively, if they decide not to have the meaningful vote or if the meaningful vote fails, then it gives a bit of time to see if there's another way that they want to go. Why did it take so much time for EU leaders to come up with that? Given that we knew what Theresa May wanted, she'd been requesting an extension all the way through to the end of June, which obviously she didn't get. And then during the course of this week, we knew that there were plans prepared by the EU just for a straightforward extension through to 22nd of May. So why did we end up in a situation where EU leaders have to spend hours drafting on pieces of paper to come up with something that's now more convoluted? Basically, when she came, she read out her letter and was asked a number of questions and really just didn't have any answers for them as to what was going to happen if the deal didn't get approved. Mm. And there was quite a concern here that they weren't seen to be pushing the UK out. Okay, and oh, so, so they, they didn't want to be holding the baby of a, of a potential no deal. Yeah, no deal so they outcome. wanted to try and craft a clever solution that would give the UK some breathing time, would help her potentially get through the House of Commons and would sort of put it back in the UK's court to say, here are the options. Let's not have a summit next week if we do find that there's a meaningful vote that doesn't approve her deal. We don't come back in less than a week with a couple of days left to try and scramble to find a solution before the 29th. Bringing Michael into this. So, Michael, when all this was done, you then had Theresa May who was basically presented with this because one of the curious elements of this process is that she's not actually with the EU leaders when they have these types of discussions. She's not in the room, so she was kind of kept informed but essentially presented with this. How did she then react to that and where does this leave her? Well, Jim, the officials here stressed that she was consulted before, during and then after the process, as you say, was was, was given the result. And uh, her tactics seem to have been very different here. After her, On Wednesday of this week, she gave a speech which went down very badly with many MPs, including some from her own party back home, where she directly appealed to the British people and said, I'm on your side and it's up to Parliament to sort itself out and do the responsible thing and pass my Brexit deal. 
this time she was much more conciliatory and said that she understood that MPs were also under a lot of pressure and that she looked forward to going back to London and working towards a solution to this crisis. So she struck a much more conciliatory note. Yeah, it's, it's a curious European summit in the sense that everyone seems to have come out happy, which is, uh, I mean, they always come out trying to sell whatever's been achieved. But with this one, you can see with Donald Tusk, the president of the European Council, in two press conferences now since the deal was reached, he's emphasised just how happy he is and how actually he's now much more optimistic about the next steps on Brexit than he was before the summit. And Theresa May, I saw one quote of a journalist saying it's as if they changed her chip because her mood was so different afterwards compared to before the summit. Yes, I would beware of confusing uh, optimism with relief. I think that you saw on both sides a real sense of this is a reprieve. We both thought that we were looking at a disastrous result as early as next week. Now we've bought ourselves a little bit more time, but you know we need to be realistic that this is just buying a, a couple of weeks of, of more time and it is striking on the British side and the EU side that they're looking for a solution but nobody really has an idea of what the contours of that solution might be. Of course we still have the old EU maxim to fall back on which is keep calm and have another summit. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Three weeks <laughs> instead of next. <laughs> Brexit then kicked the discussion on China that was planned at the summit into the following day. Uh, we've now had that discussion, so EU leaders have been able to turn their attention from Brexit into other issues, which is you know, one of their complaints recently has been that so much of their time when they're here together has been taken over by Brexit. So um, what actually came out of this concertina discussion they ended up having, Michael, on, on China? Well, it's extremely symbolic, as you say, that Brexit, i.e. an internal EU crisis, once again disrupted their attempts to address China. And this has been the pattern for the past 10 years, and they've never really had a proper discussion on China as a group for many, many years. And what you're really seeing is a kind of belated EU awakening that China is not just a block of enormous economic power that will bring benefits to European companies and consumers, but that its rise has enormous strategic implications, including in the areas of trade and security. And obviously the most high-profile example of that has been the debate over the use of Chinese technology in new 5G mobile communications networks. So this was the EU's attempt to develop a coherent and a tougher policy on China that said, well, we cooperate where we can and where we must, but that in other respects China is a competitor or even a rival. So I want to bring in Rochelle on this. Rochelle, for you then, is this a turning point? Have we now got a new, more muscular, strategic policy towards China? Is, is there going to be a before and an after discussion we had at the summit? And what kind of tools is the EU considering deploying now? I think they're still talking on a very high level, on a principled level, and so there is a lot of agreement and coherence. They are looking at some specific outward-facing tools, so screening foreign investment or public procurement, trade and trade instruments. And some of those are existing tools that they'll use to take a stronger stance. Then there's also some internal tools that they're starting to consider, competition rules and those type of instruments. And there is broad agreement on the fact that something needs to be done on the idea that China is a strategic competitor. But the details and the work that actually has to be done is coming in six months when the new commission comes in and they'll start to get into the nitty-gritty details. Well, that also sounds a bit vague, Michael. It sounds like we've got some high-level agreements on policy ideas, 
how to start building this more robust policy. But, I mean, is the EU really united around this? What have we learned on that from today's discussion? Well, what's very striking is that there is this sort of dawning realisation that there does need to be a more strategic and a tougher approach, potentially, but that there are enormous divisions within the EU, and it's extremely symbolic that at the very moment this summit was going on, President Xi Jinping of China was in Italy, where he is expected, or rather the Chinese delegation he is leading, is expected to sign with the Italians a commitment that Rome is making to cooperation and to the ideas behind China's contentious Belt and Road infrastructure drive, and this is in 80 plus countries. China builds infrastructure, Chinese companies do the work, Chinese state banks, uh, financial institutions give loans. Now, critics of this initiative, including some Northern European countries, are, are suspicious of this. They say that it's uh, strategically aggressive, that it gets countries into debt, for example, and so they don't like it. But now, if Italy signs up, that will mean half of the EU, 14 countries, will have signed up, and that this is a sign of the divisions that some people in some big European capitals fear are being brought to the EU by the relationships that China is developing with individual countries. And there's also another forum called the 16 plus 1, which is China and 16 Central and Eastern European states, including 11 EU members. Of course, some of those smaller European states who are involved in these initiatives would say, look, this is unfair because countries like France and Germany, they're big enough to have bilateral relations with China and they seem to think that's okay. Whereas we, it's more difficult for us to get face time with top Chinese leaders and this is a way for us to do that. But this is clearly something that is evolving and we will see more of these debates around the China summit next month in Brussels and beyond. It's really interesting. So it's a public unity, but competing interests. Absolutely. Well, thanks very much to you both and happy summiting. Thanks for listening. Remember, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, you can find our latest subscription offers at ft.com offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.